Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with the viral photo on social media causing a big debate. The cyclist that gets pulled over and ticketed by a motorcycle cop. Now, this happened in Victoria. So the photo shows a police officer pulling over a young woman on a bicycle, writing up a ticket. Maybe for no helmet. Maybe that was the reason. Not really clear. But I'll tell you what. It sparks a huge debate on social media over this. Should they give out more tickets to cyclists? A lot of people online saying, yeah, this is good. They should ticket more of these cyclists. They break the law all the time. Then you get the other side, the cyclists who say, no, 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 this is just harassment. This is a young woman in a bike lane just trying to get to work, got a big heavy backpack on her back, and then she's pulled over by police. Is that harassment or is it sweet justice okay i got kyla lee standing by to discuss now have a listen to this here now in the city of portland they did a police crackdown on cyclists who are blowing through stop signs have a listen to this report from cbs news police are cracking down on cyclists running stop signs they're performing a sting operation all right ma'am um i'm gonna write you a citation for running the stop sign Officers say at times they couldn't keep up with the number of bikers who refused to stop. I'm going to be late to work. Shouldn't run the stop sign. Oh my God. Are you serious right now? Yeah, I'm very serious. A lot of the cyclists say they will stop if they see a car, but they say they treat these stop signs as a yield sign. For someone on a bike, it's actually quite hard to stop and then go all the way back up to speed. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Kyla Lee. Kyla is a traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. Very pleased to welcome Kyla back to the show. Hey, Kyla, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Okay, what do you think of this debate here now? So we get this viral photograph of a, a woman on a, on a bike. She's getting ticketed by a police officer for some reason. Starts this whole debate. You know, you got one side saying, oh, it's about time. They should hand out more of these tickets. Others saying, no, this is just hassling people trying to get to work. What do you think? Oh, I'm firmly in the about time camp. Um, and we have road rules for a reason. You know, nobody nobody says it's just hassling people who are trying to get to work when you stop a vehicle that has obvious safety defects or when there's a distracted driver or somebody is speeding or putting other people at risk or putting themselves at risk in their driving behavior. And the same rules that apply to cars, with a few exceptions, also apply to cyclists. And those rules need to be enforced if they're going to be taken seriously by the public. Okay, what what rules do you think are most routinely broken by cyclists, would you say? 
I mean, the helmet one is a big one. I, yeah. I, you know, I see more people without helmets than I see with helmets. And I understand that, you know, it's it's a little bit of you're taking your own life in your hands when you choose not to wear a helmet. But we have to remember that, you know, we all share the costs of the medical system. And if you make a decision when you're not an insured person because you're on a bicycle um, to ride without a helmet and you suffer a traumatic injury, we are all going to be paying for that injury and for the treatments of that injury, not your insurance company. Um, the other big one that I see often right by my office every day is the stop sign issue. Just like in Portland, cyclists in Vancouver seem to treat stop signs as a yield sign. Okay, as as a cyclist myself, so the the helmet one, totally agree with you. I, I think most cyclists are wearing a helmet now. That's my observation, but you occasionally see cyclists who do not. And maybe there should be some more enforcement on that for sure. The other one I wonder about is when I'm riding into work, typically it's dark out and I got lights all everywhere. I got a headlight. I got a taillight. I've got little LED lights strung around my bike. I just want... Someone told me once in a bike shop, Kyla, get lit or get hit. So I took that to heart. I am totally lit up. I've got a reflective vest on. You know, I see cyclists, though, no lights, riding in the dark, wearing dark clothes. What's the law on that? Do you have to have a headlight? I don't Uh, think you do. Or do you? Okay. Yes, under the Motor Vehicle Act after dark, you are required to have a headlamp um, on your uh, on your bicycle. So it is required to be used at any point after sundown. Um, and you can be ticketed for failing to do that. And that's a big important issue, not just for your own safety, but also for the safety of any other road user. Um, because even if a driver doesn't hit you, if they swerve out of the way or slam on their brakes, they could cause a more significant collision with another vehicle um, that could result in even more damage and not just harm to yourself. Okay, let me ask you about the stop sign issue, because we heard that described there in that news report out of Portland. So you see this quite frequently, and I'll put my hand up and admit this too, that if I'm on a bike and I'm going through, I'm coming up to a stop sign, and I'm looking carefully, my head's on a swivel every time I'm biking. I do not want to get hit by a car. So I'm looking very, very carefully. If I'm coming up on a stop sign, and I see there's absolutely no traffic coming in these other directions, I mean, you know, I I can understand why a cyclist would use that as as a yield sign because you know you got to stop bring your bike to a complete stop you know it's not like putting the brakes on a car you got to get back up to speed now i mean what do you think about that i mean police must give some leeway to that don't they Oh, absolutely. And police even give leeway to some extent. Some police officers will give leeway to drivers who are approaching a stop sign and who slow down, you know, below 10 kilometers an hour, um, check that the coast is clear and then proceed. Not every officer, but many will. So, you know, we see drivers doing that same thing where they're slowing, they're making sure the intersection is clear and they're not coming to a complete stop. The thing that I see that gets me is there's a series of four-way stops on on my commute every day and there are uh, bike paths that cross these four-way stops stops and the cyclists just go straight through without slowing, without stopping and without looking. And on a daily basis, I am slamming my brakes when I am already in the intersection to avoid a cyclist who has not even noticed that I am there on a relatively busy main road in Vancouver. Okay, well, that is not good. I mean, that is just taking no. your life in your hands because the winner typically in a collision between a, a car and a, and a bike is going to be the cyclist is going to be the loser there. I mean, that's just common yeah. sense. So I think that you know, my approach on it is absolute safety first. I do not want to get hit, and I take every precaution. I ride very, very defensively. Now, on the other side, I mean, 
Are there more bad drivers or bad cyclists, though? Because I got to tell you, when I'm on my bike, I see a, I'm more concerned around the driver who doesn't see me coming when they should, you know? There are definitely way more bad drivers than bad cyclists. And there are especially bad drivers who drive badly around cyclists. The Motor Vehicle Act changed um, in 2023 um, to protect vulnerable road users and to make things like minimum passing distances and, and certain requirements for passing cyclists or allowing cyclists to ride in certain ways to take more space on the roadway for their safety. Um, yeah. But drivers really don't follow these rules. And so, you know, even though as a driver, I like to point the finger at, at cyclist bad behavior, I will admit that not only do drivers outnumber cyclists by hundreds to one, um, but they also outnumber by hundreds to one in bad driving behavior. All right. We're talking drivers versus cyclists. The Victoria cyclist ticketed by the police. My guest is Kyla Lee. Kyla's a traffic lawyer. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. June and Langley. Hi, June. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Um, One thing I learned from taking motorcycle lessons 10 years ago was the instructor said, I only ride a bike now, a pedal bike, but anyway, is you can be in the right, but you will be dead right. And I remembered Mm. that forever. So when I'm riding my bike, I'm very careful. Yeah, I love it. You can be in the right, but you'd (laughs) you'd be dead right. Yeah. That's a that's a great one. Thank you for that, June. That's called uh, cycling defensively. You know, you can't take anything for granted. Kylo, your thoughts? Absolutely, and you know, it's everybody's responsibility on the road is shared. And so, not only do drivers have to make sure that they're not hitting cyclists, but cyclists also will have to ride defensively to ensure that they're not getting hit. Um, just because you're not responsible for an accident doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer the consequences of it. And when you are a cyclist, the consequences can be fatal. Yeah, that's exactly right, John. And the North Shore. Hi, John. Hi, I'm a motorcycle and a cyclist. Um, and I, I, I just wish that our government would finish the program they started with the green boxes at the front of stoplights and stop signs. So there's the bike boxes there. Half the drivers don't even know what they're for. And in Europe, that's what they use for, for motorcycle, or scooters, motorcycles, and uh, cyclists. So they all move to the front, get out of the way of the cars, and cars can see them, and then they go first. And, and you know, in most cases, most of those people can clear the stoplight faster than a car okay tell me tell me how that tell me how that works so there's a green box at the intersection and that's how does that work what are the what what are the rules there john so the cyclists are supposed to collect in those green boxes at the front you see them painted on the roads they're all over the place but drivers have no clue what they're for because there's been no marketing or, or uh you know info commercials or anything about them but everybody goes to the front you put the most vulnerable people at the front And then all the drivers can see them, and then they clear out of the way, and then the drivers get to go past after they get out of the way. And you see them in Europe, man. The scooters come up between the cars, and it's it's pretty crazy sometimes. But but that's how they work, and there's almost nobody ever gets hit and almost no fatalities. John, thank you for that. Let's squeeze another call in here. Sean in New West. Hi, Sean. Go ahead. You know, if the the cops want to go around and give all the cyclists tickets for blowing stop signs and stuff like that, that's all right. And what we'll do is the rest of our citizens will will patrol the streets against violent crime and stuff, and we'll let them uh, take it to take it to cyclists. 
Yeah, well, we've been talking about some of the groups in B.C. that have started their own sort of vigilante patrols because uh, of crime in their neighborhoods. So I don't know, Kyla, your thoughts, like ticketing, ticketing cyclists for going through a stop sign. Is that a is that a good use of police resources? Aren't there bigger bad guys out there? There are bigger bad guys out there, but I think a lot of people don't realize that there are across British Columbia um, dedicated traffic units, not just in municipal police forces, but also in the RCMP. There's the BC Highway Patrol, and those are officers whose job it is specifically to deal with safety on the roadway. And so it's not taking uh, resources away from dealing with violent crime. They're resources that are meant to enforce the rules of the road. Yeah, right. That's a great point. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Sean in North Van. Hi, Sean. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. You know, when I'm roadside writing someone a ticket for no seatbelt, no helmet, whatever it's going to be, I get it. People don't like tickets. And you hear excuses. I know, haven't you got anything better to do? Well, actually, I don't. Um, Because my choices are sometimes writing you a ticket yeah. for no seatbelt or no helmet or holding your hand roadside while you die and or knocking on your parents' door and saying you'll never come home again. And in 24 years or a 35-year career, we do that way too often. So when you're sitting there saying, have you got anything better to do? Come on, man. I would write you a ticket nonstop if I could avoid doing those other things. Okay, Sean, I'm really happy you called in here now. Do you give out tickets to cyclists very often? Uh, I don't. Uh, I work uh, at a university, and there's 50,000, 60,000 students. It's just impossible. Yeah, is seat is seatbelt the most common thing you write up? Uh, I, I'm a safety guy. Um, yeah. I just want to see people go home at the end of the day. So, yeah, for safety infractions. We've got discretion. No one's out there going hard on, on, you know, using a stop sign as a yield sign if there's no traffic. But um, those are the alternatives. And uh, writing a ticket is a no-brainer. Thank you, Sean, for the call. Let's squeeze one more in. Alan in the Valley. Hi, Alan. you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Okay. uh, I was on Fraser Highway, paved shoulder, meter wide come up behind a bike, he's riding right on the white line, on the fog line. For me to give him the space that I'm supposed to, I have to cross a double solid line into the other lane to go around him. Um, Why not move over the meter that is paved and ride over to the shoulder? Alan, thank you for the call. Uh, Real quickly, Kyla, what is the legal requirement for giving space to a cyclist when you're passing them? You have to give a, a cyclist a minimum passing distance of a meter, so uh, you do right. need to either give that space or drive slowly behind the cyclist until it's safe for you to go around them with the appropriate space. You are not allowed to pass them more closely just because there's traffic coming in the other direction. Kyla, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. This year's Immigration Levels Plan will help address some of these challenges that I've outlined by setting a new target from 431,000 this year to 465,000 next year, 485,000 in 2024, and 500,000 in the year 2025. Okay, uh, Sean Fraser there, back when he was the immigration minister, 
announcing the increased immigration targets for Canada. Record high immigration levels there. And you heard him outline some of the extraordinary numbers there, including 500,000 new immigrants to Canada next year. Now, it adds up to around 1.5 million new Canadians over a period of a few years. So we're seeing rapidly increased immigration numbers. Now, uh, can we absorb and handle this many new people coming into the country all at once? This country, don't forget, was built on immigration. That includes my own parents. They came here from Ireland in the 1950s. So I'm the son of immigrants to Canada, just like a lot of people are. And when we look at these numbers, though, yeah, we get so many new immigrants coming to Canada. It is putting pressure on a lot of different systems in the country, including health care, schools, and housing. The government was warned about this. The breaking news out today, documents obtained under freedom of information by the Canadian press, shows that the Immigration Department was warned about this rapid increase in immigration numbers, especially when it came to housing the document sent to the deputy minister reads, in Canada, population growth has exceeded the growth in available housing units. Are we bringing in too many new Canadians into the country? Let's discuss with my guest, Aaron Woodrick. Aaron is director, domestic policy programs at the McDonald laurier Institute. And he's been writing and studying about this issue. Aaron, thanks a lot for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Aaron, very, very timely here with the revelation mm-hmm. on these documents that the, the ministry was warned here about these, about the, the escalation of immigration numbers here, especially when it comes sure. to housing. What do you think about that? Well, look, it shouldn't surprise anyone. This is this is basic arithmetic, right? I mean, housing has been a growing problem in this country. I mean, it's really blown up the last few years, but it's been a problem in the making for several decades. You pour more demand onto that, which is all it is. I mean, they could come from anywhere. If Canadians were, you know, if Canadians were having five kids each, we'd have the same problem. The reality is more demand without more supply. Uh, Economics 101 teaches us prices go up, and that's what's happening in housing. It's particularly bad in big cities like Vancouver and Toronto, but it's happening all across this country and you know this government is very late to the party even their own departmental bureaucrats were warning them about this and now they're desperately trying to play catch up uh to fix a problem that frankly is going to take a very long time to solve okay it's interesting though i don't seem to detect any willingness by the government to slow down on these immigration targets Mm. i mean maybe that will happen but let's have another listen here to another clip of sean fraser here he's the former immigration minister now the housing minister here and here he is describing why we need so many new immigrants to Canada. He says, look, it's to fill job vacancies, okay? Let's listen. It's hard to find workers. Uh, The reality is you don't need to uh, dig into the stats to understand that there was a a million jobs available in the Canadian economy. You need to walk down Main Street of any community in Canada. You're going to see help wanted signs in the window. We need more workers in every sector, in every region of the country, regardless of whether it's frontline healthcare workers, truck drivers, home builders, or software engineers. Okay, so he included home builders there and the people we're trying to attract to Canada to build all the new homes we need. Aaron, your thoughts? 
Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, to be fair to Mr. Fraser, he's partly right here, right? Turning the tap, some people think we should just stop all immigration. I think that would create a different set of problems that people are being naive about. And similarly, when it comes to things like building houses, some of that labor would come from new people. So it's not a straight sort of net net, uh, downside. There is upside to having immigrants. I don't want to downplay that. What he's not saying, though, is part of the reason, part of the reason, uh, Mike, that we we have difficulty attracting workers, especially in certain parts of the country, is the entitlement programs that allow people to work seasonally or not work at all. They're so generous in some instances that the difference between working a low-wage job and going on these benefits is, is marginal. So they want to talk about entitlement reform. If, frankly, if you made it less lucrative, and I don't want to overstate it, it's not like you can live the high life on benefits, but some people can afford to not work. And when you have a system that allows that, of course you're going to find uh, it more difficult to get workers. Uh, the other thing that they doesn't, he doesn't want to mention is this country has a productivity problem. The only reason that businesses are going to invest in things that create more productive jobs, technology that makes jobs more uh, valuable per hour worked, is if, uh, if there's a shortage of labor. And so, in effect, we are deterring companies from investing in productivity by substituting cheap labor. And that's the reason Canada has got such a gap with the United States. In the U.S., uh, people tend to invest, the companies invest more. Um, and here, we're just substituting cheap labor instead of uh, requiring well, companies to invest. Okay, well, cheap labor is one thing. What about attracting, you know, well-paid professionals? Because, boy, we need a lot of those. We need doctors. We need nurses, right? We've got key shortages in some of these sectors of our economy. And I hear this from the government all the time, that we want to attract and bring in doctors, nurses, highly trained and highly skilled professionals that are desperately needed here. We need to streamline the approval process so that their foreign credentials can be accepted here in Canada. Do you see any evidence that that's working? I mean, we hear it all the time, but then I also continue to hear these horror stories about people who are highly trained professionals from engineers or doctors who can't get work in Canada because they can't get certified here. Yeah, look, we do need those skilled workers. I don't think that's really the controversial stream, even if in the opposition. I think everyone's agreed that these are the workers we need. The issue is how we get them working in their appropriate fields quickly. Uh, but again, th- this is a bit of a red herring because this is not the controversial part. When we talk about a uh, number of immigrants, there's a huge loophole in all this, Mike, and that is the student stream. Um, the student oh, stream yeah. has exploded in recent years and this has essentially become a backdoor to permanent residency. You have people here who would not qualify through the point system normally coming here to get a degree at a local community college. In a lot of cases they don't even go to school. Uh, sometimes Sometimes they are passed along by the university because they're under pressure. They don't want to lose the, the tuition dollars. And then these people, once they have their degree in hand, qualify for permanent residency. So, look, we can have a good debate about how many permanent residents we want, but we shouldn't set up this loophole that allows people to come in through the student stream um, and then effectively backdoor their way into the, the PR uh, status. Yeah, and the, the other thing that's important about international students is that there are no maximum limits on it, right? I mean, there's no cap yes. on the number that can come in under that program, correct? Exactly, and there's a huge yeah. incentive, Mike, for these, these institutions to bring them in because they can charge them a lot more. Right. Sure. So think about it. If you're a college or university and you can't raise tuition on, on Canadian students, you're going to look to these very lucrative international students and you're going to start to lower your standards. You're going to look the other way when they have to, for example, show proof of funds to pay for living here, all sorts of things like this. And so I, I, I think what we have here is a lot of people kind of averting their eyes because it's difficult to tackle the problem. But I'm, I really believe if we don't tackle it soon, um, there's going to be political blowback that is uh, that is not very pleasant for anyone.
Yeah, speaking of Aaron Woodrick, McDonald Laurier Institute, talking about record high immigration to Canada. The newly revealed documents here now that the government was warned that too many people coming into the country could put additional strains on the housing system, among other among other things. You know, the other part of the uh, the international student issue, which I find really interesting, is. Yeah, you've got colleges and universities here that have effectively become addicted to the revenue that is brought in by mm-hmm. international students, and they need the money. The other thing that happens is you get these sort of fly-by-night colleges that aren't really real colleges. They're just kind of a... It, it seems like they're a, a smoke screen uh, just to get people into the country so they can work, never mind go to school. But it turns into like a work program and not an education program, right? Like that's going on. And we hear the federal government, they want to do something like that. And they're pointing a finger at the provinces. You guys got to fix this. Yeah, and then that's a classic Canadian federalism, right? A lot of finger pointing going on. But you're yeah. absolutely right. There are some institutions that are starting to function, frankly, like degree mills. And yeah. that's a big problem. I mean, that's not good for anyone. It's, 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 it's bad for Canadians that resent people using the back door. Frankly, it's bad for these poor students. I mean, they're being exploited in, in a manner of speaking. Uh, and so I, I just I think this this needs to be tackled head on. Um, it is something that's very touchy. A lot of of, you know, you, a lot of these institutions have just got away with it for years because no one really seemed to, to bat an eyelash. And I think that that time of, uh, you know, quietly averting eyes is, is going to be coming to an end. Yeah, I think the government's kind of lost control on this. Here's another thing that is really important to know. Why the government wants to bring in so many new Canadians into Canada. And let's listen to Sean Fraser here again, the former immigration minister outlining this. Because what he points out is we need more people working and paying taxes to support Canadians who are retired, like all the entitlement programs, old age security, Canada pension plan, a health care system that is under strain with an aging population. We need more people producing, working, paying taxes to support the system. So listen to Sean Fraser here outline it, the former immigration minister. Let's listen. Immigration is not just about addressing labor shortages. It's also about correcting one of the demographic trends that worries me uh, every day. And that's the fact that Canada has an aging population. If you rewind the clock 50 years, you'd see that Canada had seven workers for every retired person. Today, that number's closer to three. By 2035, on our current trajectory, it looks like that number's going to be two. If we don't do something to correct this demographic trend, the conversation we're going to have 10 or 15 years from now won't be about labor shortages. It's going to be about whether we have the economic capacity to continue to fund schools and hospitals and public services that I think we too often take for granted. Okay, those are some interesting numbers he outlined there, that we used to have seven people working for every one person retired. Now it's three people working for every retiree, and he says it will soon be only two people working for every retired person. I mean, he's got a point, does Mm -hmm. he not? He absolutely does. And in fact, I'm very familiar with those numbers, Mike, because I used to use them myself when I worked at the Taxpayers Federation as an argument against running deficits and building up debt, precisely because our capacity to pay for these things was going to go down over time. And so now I find it a little bit interesting that, that it's, it's Mr. Fraser and the Liberals using this argument. Look, this is, this is the same as saying, well, we're not bringing in enough tax um, revenue, so the only solution is to raise taxes. Well, you could also cut spending. And that's something I think Mr. Fraser is leaving out, is he's simply asserting 
asserting that every single thing that the federal government is spending money on right now is, is something we have to continue spending money on. I'm not sure all Canadians are aligned with that. So, look, I, I agree with his, his uh, point about working its population. I'm not against, uh, I think we still are going to need immigration for the foreseeable future. The debate sure. is not over whether we have it. It's about how much. It's happened one too many times across the Lower Mainland. An overheight truck striking an overpass, this time on the North Shore. Another case of a vehicle hitting an overpass, this time on Highway 1 in Abbotsford. The back of that semi that slammed into Camby Road. It appears a piece of heavy equipment on trailers slammed into the 264th Street overpass. Structural engineers are on site assessing the damage after a truck with an oversized load struck that overpass to have this happen again uh it is just so frustrating okay well there you go it just keeps happening over and over again the trucks versus overpasses it was a big story in 2023 it is continuing in 2024 last night we get the dramatic video of an overheight truck going for a scrape through the massey tunnel the sparks just flying through the tunnel as that overheight vehicle tries to squeeze through the tunnel, slams on the brakes. The whole thing caught in a dash cam by the driver behind that vehicle. Let's discuss it all now with my guest, Rob Fleming, British Columbia's Minister of Transportation. And I'm very pleased he could take the time to join us today. Minister, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Minister, I know this has been a source of frustration for you, uh, for sure. First, let's start with the this latest one here, this video of this truck going through a scrape through the Massey Tunnel here. What are your thoughts on this? Why does this keep happening? Well, we're going to obviously do an investigation right now, and are tracking down the driver, and uh, I'll leave it to the investigators to... Uh, do the work that they need to do, but uh, it speaks to the other examples that you had in your introduction there. This should not be happening anywhere ever uh, on our uh, highway and road network in British Columbia. It's never been easier to uh, measure the height of your vehicle with digital tools that we have. Um, This should never happen. Uh, Professional drivers, dispatchers, anybody involved in the trucking industry uh, that has to apply for permits for overweight or overheight vehicles, um, you know, the conditions of the permit are, are based on what the cargo is that is being carried uh, by the driver. So, you know, route planning is is a basic of any safe delivery of any commodity in, in our province or if they're going over the provincial border to another destination. So there's no excuses is what I'm saying, Mike, um, yeah. of what we're trying to do now to reduce these from happening. Uh, is uh, is much tougher uh, compliance, financial penalties. Uh, we had an example uh, just before the new year ticked over of a company that had been involved in six of them. Their entire fleet has now been suspended pending an investigation. That obviously has a huge financial cost to the carrier, but based on their safety record, we have to make the determination whether they have... Uh, you know, been been profligate and violating safety rules and whether there's something systemic there in the company and whether they violated previous uh, safety plans that have been put in place. And I'll let the investigators do their work on that as well. But, uh, you know, we now have the highest fines under law in Canada. Mm. Uh, but there's more to do here. And that's why uh, starting in this new year, we've asked for some federal coordination. There's been an issue that has arisen from time to time uh, in this great big country of ours about uh, safety licensing being issued uh, individually in each province and territory and whether 
we ought to move in the direction of the United States and other countries and have a national system in place so that when we do have a problem company, and, and we are trying to be very you know, laser-focused here and pinpoint the extreme minority, the tiny portion of the industry that is being irresponsible and reckless on our roads, um, can we uh, have something that's effective nationally in the country? We're doing our job in BC to to crack down on this, but uh, we also are worried that, uh, you know, there are companies that are uh, affiliated or the same that are uh, plated and headquartered uh, across a, a different provincial border uh, doing business in BC uh, while another company um, here in British Columbia is under suspension. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the fines? You touched briefly on that, and I, I recall your news conference recently where you talked about mm-hmm. a massive increase in fines. How much are the fines now? Well, they're five seventy-five, um, so they've, they've quintupled uh, from where they were. Uh, they are the highest in the country, uh, but we are committed also to review. Five hundred, five hundred, five hundred and seventy-five dollars. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so that's the highest. That doesn't seem like that. that doesn't seem that high to me. Agreed, and uh, and we've been very public uh, about uh, reviewing potential legislative changes that would allow even higher fines. But that's the the limit under the law right now. It is the highest in the country. But what's more important was the other measure we took, which is the ability to now uh, ground an entire fleet uh, for a company that is, uh, you know, a repeat offender, if I can put it that way, for overpass collisions. That uh, sends out a very strong economic punitive measure for anybody that. Uh, uh, that is not uh, taking the due care and, and diligence that they've committed to, that they legally uh, sign uh, uh, and commit to doing, uh, and are uh, uh, you know not living up to the conditions of their safety certificates. Speaking to BC Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, you mentioned that the loophole with companies that operate in multiple provinces, and maybe they might be f- facing some suspensions uh, here in British Columbia, but maybe they're running vehicles from out of the province into into British Columbia and continue to operate, and I know that's a source of frustration for you, mm-hmm. that you wrote a letter to the, the fe- your federal counterpart, the federal transportation minister on this point. Have you heard back from him? Uh, no, but we're going to follow up, and we do have a meeting coming up of all the uh, ministers responsible for transportation and highway safety uh, next month. Uh, involves the federal, provincial, and territorial ministers. We want to get this item on the agenda. This is this won't be the first time uh, that this has been discussed. I think these discussions have been ongoing since the 1980s, and for one reason or another, um, the focus has been on uh, you know having the federal government basically be a standard bearer, and that the provinces have to have their safety regimes meet or exceed the federal government. Ours does, but there is no um, you know overlaying uh, uh, responsibility uh, for you know national enforcement. And uh, that certainly is a feature in interstate trucking in the United States. We think, you know, as our country is now 38 million people and supply chains are more and more sophisticated and more and more trucks uh, crossing uh, provincial borders or multiple provincial borders, uh, the time is now to, uh, to have the federal government perhaps step up and play a role, as they do, for example, in aviation safety or in railway safety. Let me play a clip here for you, Minister, from a caller earlier today on the show who I thought asked a, a great question. He is a longtime truck driver in B.C., John in Langley. He called earlier on the show. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. I'd like to know how many way stations have they closed down in the last 20, 25 years? Well, and more importantly, how many of the uh, commercial truck division, uh, the guys out on the road, uh, how many have they cut back there? Because they're they're closing them all up. The only one we got now is the border. Okay, is that is that true, Minister? He says that no. some way stations have been shut down. Go ahead. 
No, no, that's not accurate. Okay. And the CVSC is more robust than it has been. Um, and we have mobile way stations now. We have mobile units that are doing enforcement on our highways. Um, you know, look, there are some trucks that circumvent way stations. There's no question about it. And uh, we track those people down and, uh, uh, and have those vehicles weighed. We have the capacity to do it uh, on the side of the road. Uh, we can direct those trucks to get into a way station. So we, we are aware that there are some uh, drivers that are not uh, uh, that are avoiding way stations, and we are uh, targeting our enforcement at those who are, who are uh, committing are, those kinds of offenses. Are there, are there any out-of-province truck drivers who drive into B.C. and maybe driving recklessly or dangerously? I, I spoke to Ward Stamer on the show yesterday, the mayor of Barrier. I know you're familiar with yeah. his concerns, where he, he yeah. believes that uh, we need more enforcement for out-of-province truckers who may come here, rack up speeding tickets, but maybe it doesn't result in any penalties when they get back to their home to their home province, like maybe next door in Alberta. Is that a, is that a, is that true? Is that a problem? Um, it, it is in terms of enforcement around safety. If we have an out-of-province carrier that with a you know a poor safety record that is headquartered outside of the province, and that's why we are you know, trying to coordinate this discussion with the federal government about how we can have nationally coordinated penalties and uh, have certificates lifted uh, across jurisdictions. Uh, but in terms of a driver, you know, who's doing excessive speeding or driving recklessly, uh, police uh, can and do uh, issue uh, roadside violation tickets. Uh, those go to ICBC. Those are then put into collection. Uh, so there is enforcement around uh, those fines uh, uh, for out-of-province uh, violations that that would include for anybody driving in British Columbia. Uh, but right. what we need is the stronger measure, which we've just been discussing here, and that is the ability to look at a, a carrier's safety, overall safety record, and where there are concerns to have a, a national enforcement tool. Final question for you, Minister. We're going into deep freeze weather here. The outlook for the deep freeze in the north and the interior, particularly plunging down to uh, really low temperatures, concern about icy or snowy conditions throughout the province here. Is the province ready here for this uh, deep freeze we're facing here in the next few days? Yeah, all of our road maintenance contractors have been ready for uh, a harsh winter, and that winter has uh, not appeared uh, significantly uh, uh, earlier in the season, and it's yeah. upon us now. And I think that everybody who is driving either professionally well, for any purpose, uh, really needs to pay attention closely to Environment Canada. They need to look at websites like Drive BC um, for people who are not driving for work purposes to consider uh, whether they need to make those trips based on what the forecast looks like because we don't want anyone caught out in the storm. But people who do need to drive, uh, if they're in their own personal vehicle, you know, have food and water, have warm blankets, uh, be prepared for anything, have good tires. Uh, you know, on our on our uh, high mountain overpass highways, of course, uh, you know, things like uh, chains uh, requirements coming into effect are, are part of that. But the road maintenance contractors have been stockpiling material to melt uh, ice, to, to plow snow. They've been procuring extra equipment in the, in the lower mainland where it's very busy, having things like heavy tow operators pre-positioned in place to make sure that, you know, the Alex Fraser or the Portman Bridge can be cleared if a, a transit vehicle or a large commercial vehicle spins out and blocks lanes to get it out of there quickly. That's that's really important. But the last thing, too, and I appreciate being on your show for this, Mike, is that British Columbians are really good at observing, uh, for the most part, you know, construction lower speed limits, keeping workers safe. We've, we've got a decade of, of public education on that. 
we need people to obey uh, amber lights that may be in the rearview mirror that are plow, plow truck operators and others that are uh, maintaining our roads uh, during the uh, winter weather season here. Uh, you pull over, you give way, and let those people do their work. Yeah, yeah, good reminder for sure. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. Let's go right to your phone calls. John in Langley. Hi, John. Go ahead. I'd like to ask the minister. I don't know where he's get his information from, but if you go on, if you go online, there's four uh, public uh, British Columbia way stations listed. One in Laylaw, uh, Nordell, Pacific, and one over in Parksville, and they're all random. Uh, I'd like to ask the minister, what happened to the way stations at the foot of the Patella Bridge? What happened to the way stations on the number one east and westbound? What happened to the way stations on the north end of the Dees Tunnel? What happened to the way stations at the foot of the Alex Fraser Bridge? Where, where have all these gone? And I have yet to see a flying inspection team anywhere in this province, and I travel around quite a bit. Uh, it's just it's not happening. And another thing is that if they did have an inspection, uh, that the amount of failures would be astronomical that these trucks are unsafe to be on the road. And that's Thanks. that's what I got to say. I'd like the minister to tell me where all these way stations are now and how how long they're open or are they all just random the what few they have left. Thank you, John, for the call. Well, I did ask the minister. I played him your earlier call and he responded to it and said that. Well, he said some of the information was not accurate, but I, I will, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will circle back to him and put those specifics to him, okay? So keep listening to the show, and I will get that information for you. Eric in Abbotsford. Hi, Eric, go ahead. Hi, I just listened to the previous caller and agree with him 100%. I don't know how out of touch this guy is. Uh, last week I was coming over uh Alex Razor, Nordell, it, it's got an open sign so you know to go through it. So I do my due diligence. I work for a larger company and we take safety seriously. Watching everyone just blow by it, um, I finally get to the uh, um, unloaded lane because I was deadheaded. And I'm waiting for somebody to even acknowledge as I'm going over the scale. You have to watch you know, your weights and your axles and weigh your axles. And, uh, yeah, the guy's got his back to me, I guess, chatting with uh, – maybe one of his colleagues, and another thing, I don't see these mobile things around. Guys back, you know, quite a few years ago just used to warn each other over the radio to go around them, basically, is what so, they do. So, let me, so Eric, um, let me ask you this. When you say, like, you, you, you see these other trucks just blowing by these stations, like, are you legally required to pull into these weigh stations and have your truck weighed and, and looked at, or, and guys just don't bother? No, even if you're empty and you, you're certain GBW, yes, you're supposed to go through. And they used to chase guys down, um, um, you know, if they were blowing by. That was the whole thing. They, I don't honestly think they have enough people, just like the Mounties, just like everybody else, to do enforcement. <laughs> you know, it's a matter of people. And he's right. There's the Nordell scale and the Hague scale. That's the only two I've ever had to go through. I don't go to the island. Um, and I haven't seen – I'm mostly working afternoon night shift, but I don't see any enforcement. All I see is when I have to go – smaller vehicle is a CBSA truck parked in his driveway <laughs> and I'm not making that up. Okay. So, Eric, thank you. Thank you know. for the call. Thank you for the call. It's really interesting. Dave and mission, Dave, you got 30 seconds. Go ahead. Hey Mike, let's, uh, I've talked to you about this before quite often, but let's talk about the elephant in the room here. And it all comes down to training. You can't have guys driving around in a truck and a trailer in Abbotsford and Surrey round and round on streets and stuff like that and expecting them to gain any kind of experience. You need to get experience. And let's. And the other thing is, too, you can't have people coming over here from countries 
that do not speak our language and expect them to be able to follow the rules. Go okay. on the field track on Facebook, Mike, and have a look at what's going on there, and it will Thank open you. your eyes. Thank you, Dave, for the call. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.